Are you offering your clients the experience they really want? Or are you offering them what you think they want? Join hosts Laura Gregg and David Partain from FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds as they talk with a variety of industry experts and advisors, just like you, about their latest industry research to help you develop the flexible mindset you need to rise above the crowd. Hello, and welcome to the Flexible Advisor Podcast. I'm Laura Gregg, and of course, I'm here with my co-host, David Partain. Hello, David. Hello, Laura. It is great to be with you. I look forward to our time, and I am so grateful for the rain that is here in Chicago. Yeah, we needed it. So today on our show, we're going to focus again on FlexShare's recent behavioral research study titled The New Rules of Growing Wallet Share. Uh, where we talk about the emotions that really drive client decisions about whether and if they give you more money to manage. But our guest today is uh, really focused in the behavioral aspect of this industry. Michael Pompian is founder and chief investment officer at Sunpoint Investments located in St. Louis. He is an authority in the practical application of behavioral finance concepts to wealth management. He has written academic papers and five books on the topic in which he strives to help investors plan a strategy that's targeted to their unique personalities. His books help investors identify their own unique investment type, and it offers strategies for them to use when investing. Michael has also conducted training for financial advisors on these biases and behavioral investor types. When seeking advisors to join him at some point, Michael's always looking for professionals that are passionate about behavioral finance and that share his values and are interested in helping clients that have complex investment portfolios. We're so excited to talk shop with you today, Michael, and to get your insights on your recent behavioral work uh, and to discuss how that aligns or is different from what we've done here at FlexShare. So thank you so much for joining us on the Flexible Advisor podcast. Well, Laura, thank you very much, and David as well, for having me on. I, I do like to talk about behavioral finance. It's been a passion of mine for over 20 years. So whenever I get a chance to come on and, and talk, I, I welcome it. So thanks for inviting me. Fantastic. You know, our goal for our listeners today uh, is to better help them understand the emotions that factor into why or why not their clients feel comfortable in giving them more money to manage. So we'll, we'll talk about the complexities of building trust and why it can be very different from one client to another based on their persona and their money stories. And Michael, we're, we're hoping to get from you some strategies on how you've been able to build a deeper level of trust with your clients based on the behavioral work that you've been working on for the past two decades. Well, Michael, we always love to hear about a guest journey. So let's kick this conversation off by having you tell us about what got you interested in the study of behavioral finance. Sounds like you've been doing this for a couple of decades now and how you've been able to apply your findings to help your own wealth management business. I would love to do that. Thank you. So I began my career in 1987. So that dates me a little bit. And about three months into my first job, we had the stock market crash in 1987, in which the market, the stock market corrected 22% in one day. 
And as somebody who just graduated from college and kind of new to the business and seeing the headlines and all the chaos that really had an impact on me. And I, I started to ask myself, how could this happen? How could these companies, all these great iconic American companies lose 20% of their value in one single day? And so I just started reading about the stock markets and I started to read some books by who then were unknown people. So Daniel Kahneman, Hirsch Sheffrin, Robert Schiller, Dick Thaler, who were writing about the emotional side of investing. And back then, throughout the 70s, uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, the standard finance camp, mostly out of the University, University of Chicago, was really the dominant theory on Wall Street, the efficient market theories, mm -hmm. that the, the price is always right and the market's always right. And that just did not make sense to me in light of what happened in, in that single day in 1987. And so I started reading about behavioral finance and it was a very sort of avant-garde, non-mainstream way of thinking about things, but I loved it. I've always been a student of psychology and people and how people influence, in this case, markets. So, you know, I started reading these, these things and then sort of the late nineties came around and we started to see the tech bubble, you know, 1980s, 1997, 98, going into 99. Yep. And again, this irrationality where I, I remember talking to some financial professionals back then talking about how it seemed that the more money the companies lost, the more valuable they were. And at the same time, I was, I was doing my CFA and learning about efficient markets and the two just, you know, did not make sense. And so co coincident to that moment, and I know it's a little bit long-winded, but uh, we'll come to, to the point here. I, through my, through my job and actually my wife's job as well, we took Myers-Briggs test and we learned about our personality types. And we, we've talked about that. I remember over dinner one night, we didn't have any kids back then, so we could have like nice quiet dinners. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so later that night, I remember reading about behavioral finance through, you know, one of the authors I was reading back that I mentioned, and all of a sudden this light bulb went off in my head and said, doesn't it make sense that people of different personality types would want to invest differently? And so that next week, I, I was living in the New York City area at that time, and I went to the CFA Society, the New York Society of Securities Analysts. We had a meeting there, and I met up with a guy that I'd known for a little while. His name is John Longo, and I was discussing this with him, and he said, you know, we, I, I'm interested in this too. We could write a paper about this. So we did a, a, a study of 100 investors and behavioral biases, and I don't have enough time to go into the, all the details here, but we found some statistically significant correlations between investor types and different types of biases or, or personality types and different mm. types of biases and wrote a paper about it. And it was published in the journal of wealth management. And that was sort of the beginning of my work in the space. And then it just went on from there. I've written more papers and then I finally wrote my book, but um, my first book, but then I guess that's how it all started. Yeah. You and I really started in the industry together. I remember that day when it was just seemingly crashing and I was sitting on a, a trading desk just watching it go down. And so I, I, you know, all the 
all the stories that you heard of the the crash in, during the depression they all have people jumping off bridges and it was it was pretty wild and then that second second um iteration there in the 90s uh, i've t- remember that as well but mostly i remember not having quiet meals having five kids myself we never ever had a quiet meal so <laughs> congrats to you yeah, yeah. yeah. we have two in college now so that's well, nice we try to find congrats on that <laughs> well as laura mentioned we have conducted some recent behavioral research and what we've learned while conducting our research and frankly just from being in the industry for so so long myself is how powerful it can be to understand the emotions that are often driving a client's behavior so to me it is kind of like a puzzle and the more you can understand that connection the better you're able to put the, the pieces fit the pieces together whether that's in how they ask you what to invest in, or in the case of our research, what compels them to choose you even as their advisor, and then somewhere along the way to give you more money to manage. And by the way, congrats on your recent book, which is always a feat, I hear, Behavioral Finance and Your Portfolio, A Navigation Guide for Building Wealth. And you call it, I think you refer to it as your greatest hits. Talk to us about your your book. Okay. Yeah. No. Thank you. That, that's that's um, appreciate the kind words there. Yeah. That was the fifth book I've written, and it is wow. somewhat of a, an accumulation of the four prior books that I've written. It does have some, you know, new content as well. So it may make sense to go back to the beginning and and talk about the evolution of my books and how yeah. they work. My first book, as, as, so I guess it's a, sort of a continuation of, this, of where I left off from the last uh, question. So after I wrote that first paper, which was on the connection between personality types and biases, I wrote another paper, which was about even if you know the biases that some people have, what do you do about it? Hmm. And so I came up with a methodology where based on the type of bias and the level of wealth is it can guide you as to how you should invest how you should advise that particular client and i'll get into a little bit more about that as we go on but then all of a sudden i had an idea for a book which was to identify 20 of the most common what i consider to be the most common behavioral biases that that financial advisors might encounter because there wasn't such a book. It didn't exist. And I wanted that book as a financial advisor at that time myself. And so I started researching behavioral. I'd already been reading, as I told you, you know, all various people. So I knew, I knew the topic reasonably well. And then I started going into academic websites and different research portals and things, trying to identify all the behavioral uh, biases that I could find. And I identified about a hundred different authors or different people who had identified different be- types of behaviors as it relates to either money or investment decision-making. Hmm. And I noticed as I, I sort of plotted them all out, I wrote them all down. And what I noticed was there were overlap between many of them. You know, even though know, you called it one thing, it, it resembled another. And so I really boiled it down to 20 biases that I thought encapsulated most, if not all of the different types of behaviors that you might encounter as an advisor. And so I identified those 20, those are in the first book. 
and so that's that was my first book. Now, then I, I started thinking more about it. I used many of the questionnaires that I had developed at that time with clients. And what I found was that it was complicated and a little bit cumbersome to ask 20 questions and also try to advise people on 20 different biases. As, as I have been doing this for 20 years, now I can identify them relatively quickly and I don't have to go through all the, the laborious process. But mm. what I had figured out through going through this process, and this is where sort of the art and the science connect, is mm. I noticed there were certain types of investors that displayed certain kinds of biases. And so... One of the biggest contributions I have made, I think, to behavioral finance, that the topic and the research and just the whole use of it in, in this, this realm is the distinction between emotional and cognitive biases. I'm told I was the first to ever really do that, to break them apart mm -hmm. in, into thinking and feeling biases. So emotional biases have to do, again, with how people feel about things, and they're more difficult to correct. Whereas cognitive biases or thinking biases have to do with, with how people think and they're easier to correct because it's easier to change your thinking than it is to change how you feel about something. So what I did, what I created was uh, four investor types and the way to encapsulate the thinking in a quick format is the least risk tolerant and the most risk tolerant are driven primarily by emotional biases. So the preserver and the accumulator, the preserver being the least risk tolerant, the accumulator being the most risk tolerant, are mainly driven, and they're the most difficult to advise mm. as an advisor. If you have a super duper conservative or a super duper aggressive person, it's challenging to advise those kind of people to get them to stick to a plan to make a solid decision. In the middle, you have a follower and an independent which are mainly driven by cognitive biases. So a follower tends to follow along with the crowd, do things that their friends are doing, et cetera. And independent is sort of the opposite where they have their own ideas about what to invest in, do their own research. And there are biases associated with all four of those types. And so getting back to the book, the, the, the fifth book reviews all of those individual biases where, all of the behavioral investor types and then applies them in case studies. So oh, there, was a there was a separate book for the investor types. So that's why it's considered greatest hits where it, so if you get the latest book, it really does encapsulate much of the last 20 years of my work. That is, um, you know, I'm sitting here, David, as I'm, I'm guessing you probably are too, and thinking of our personas and how yeah. they would fall in there's in those buckets. And, you know, I think, you know, our protector, Michael's probably pretty similar to your preserver. And, and I think absolutely that's definitely an emotional bias. So we'll, we'll have to go back and think through this as it relates to the work that we've done, which I'll mention. And I think I, I might've mentioned this to you, Michael, when we were talking about possibly doing this, the research team, uh, our psychologists that were trained at the University of Chicago and taught there for some time. So we've got that in 
connection too. But you know, I was looking at your website and there there's just a ton of great resources and the website is michaelpompian.com. But one of the things I liked the most was the 12 question quiz there that you had that helped me identify my own personal investor type and my type came out to be the accumulator which as I read through the summary seemed to be very spot on to how I invest. And so I'm, I'm curious if you ask your client prospects to take this quiz during or before onboarding and how you use the information to serve them. And then also, if you are giving them the quiz or some form of that, have you ever turned a potential client away because it was clear that they probably wouldn't be a fit for how you run your business and what your goals are? So... Great question. So the first, first, uh, first of all, uh, we do use either this questionnaire or a blended risk tolerance questionnaire with some behavioral elements in, within the in the risk tolerance questionnaire, so that we can assess in one way or another their behavioral profile. Certain prospects, certain clients are more receptive to understanding their own psychology than others. And so it, as an advisor, you have to be a little careful, especially when you don't know the person that well, to diving into you know, potentially deep psychological issues related to money or investment decision-making, especially if mistakes have been made in the past or things like that. But in, nevertheless, to some degree or another, we will ask behavioral questions in our questionnaire and then discuss the results with our our prospect or our client so that we come to a, a certain understanding of how decisions will be made in the future. So let's say we were doing this a, you know, a year ago, two years ago, we might say to somebody, things are good right now. Markets are going up. There doesn't seem to be a lot of chaos in the world, but there will come a time when there will be disruptions and we want to make sure that we're on the same page about how those decisions are going to be made in the future in terms of sticking to the portfolio, your risk tolerance, et cetera. And coincidentally, now is a time where things have changed and we're pulling out documents that we may have reviewed you know, a year ago or two years ago. So to, to really reinforce the decision-making that we're making, that, that, that we made at that time. And it helps uh, clients to to understand, yes, I, I am going to stick to my plan. I do, I do understand my behavioral profile a little better. And that has really helped with a continuity of our, of our client base. So we've had clients, current clients at my, my, my own firm have been with us for over a decade and, you know, they're still with us. So I think that's a testament to understanding who they are as people and, making sure that we understand, you know, their behavioral profile. Yeah. And it, it, it's great to have those conversations and then come back to them when things have changed. And uh, I'm sure, um, you know, it really provides them some con confidence and your guidance of them through all different markets. Mm -hmm. The premise of the research that we've done here at FlexShares is different from what you do because it's not necessarily aligned on the investment decisions, what types of portfolios, what types of stocks and bonds and so forth. However, it, you know, it is somewhat aligned 
to what you're doing because it's all behavioral, right? So we search to understand how emotions drive the behavior of clients in terms of giving their advisors more money to manage or consolidating their investments with fewer advisors or to one primary advisor. And we, we sought to understand why some people are very comfortable working with one advisor and why for others, uh, they spread it between uh, many advisors, probably in, in some cases too many. And as you found, you know, some of the behaviors of our persona types are just not beneficial for those investors or for their relationship with their advisors. For example, our our protector personas, which it feels like it's similar to your preserver investor type is highly risk averse. And while they know inside that they really do need a professional money manager, they often shy away from it because they're fearful that this person will lose all their money. They don't trust the industry. They don't often, unfortunately, trust the people that they've actually hired to work on their behalf. And, and so often they're DIY investors and, and don't have much investment expertise. So they've got a lot of stuff on the sideline. So long-winded story, <laughs> but I'm curious how you would coach an advisor to approach this type of investor that's very cautious, this person that probably feels like the market could collapse at any moment and take all of their retirement savings with them. Okay. Yeah. The, so in, in my framework and in my way of looking at, at this situation where you have an, a, an investor, let's say, who is quite risk averse, who has spread their money all around to other, let's say, to two or three different places, they may be sort of being their own portfolio manager and not really getting advice from you know, any one, one sort of architect, I like to call it. That's classic mental accounting where you put different money money into different either actual accounts or mental accounts and people just tend to think that way you know money here money there money here and then what happens is typically is you have a suboptimal portfolio and one concrete example is people tend to have too much cash in each of these different accounts so if you were to aggregate it you might have 30 40 50% cash and you don't even realize it because You've got your money spread all around, including like 401ks and other things. So in my framework, that is, it does fall under uh, the preserver. And as I said earlier, the preserver tends to be driven by emotion. And so what I prescribe for in, in the biggest picture sense is the following. So for People who are driven by emotion, data is not typically the best approach, providing data. So, for example, if I were to tell somebody that's driven by emotion that, by the way, the sharp ratio of your portfolio is way too low, that's not really going to move them to action as much as it might somebody who, let's just say, is more quantitatively oriented, like an independent investor type that I mentioned earlier. When it comes to emotional investors, what, what I, my experience is that using heart, what I call heart language, you know, things about what the money is used for, you know, for family orientation, like for college savings or retirement, or, you know, how are you going to feel if you make this decision and it doesn't work out as it relates to an emotional subject, like a family member, 
or members. So that's my advice is to, for emotional investors, use heart language to try to spur on action. I, I, I love that term. And I, yeah, I promise really you, Michael, if I use it in the future, your name will be attached to it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I I have a feeling that's coming out of my mouth. That's such a great way to put it, but I will give credit where credit is due. While reading an overview of your book, I haven't had the time to read it yet, but it is uh, on my list for the next month or two. You stated a number of scenarios about when an investor should return to your book, take it off the shelf, reread it. And, and one of those was when they're feeling stressed. And very early on in this podcast, we had the, the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Newcomb, who's a behavioral scientist at Morningstar. And she spoke a lot about the stress that investors feel when the markets become volatile and they there's a fight or flight response um, so often uh, exhibited. And so reading you know, your book before making an impulsive decision would seem to make a lot of sense. And I also wanted to get your, your thoughts on this. A couple of months ago, I was at a, a conference in which Joe Duran, the founder of United Capital, which is now part of Goldman Sachs, was speaking about how advisors are not doing a good enough job in terms of differentiating themselves and who they are to better appeal to clients. And, you know, he reminded the audience that, you know, what clients are looking for from you is not that your team has 70 years of collective experience or retirement expertise. He talked a lot about how what, what clients people really want is for you to assure them that you're going to be here, there to help relieve their stress when unexpected things happen, uh, either in their lives or in the market. So I'm curious, Michael, whether or not that resonates with you and how you talk about your value proposition with your Sunpoint clients and prospects. Absolutely. So the, the, the antidote to poor decision-making, investment decision-making is a structured plan. Just generally speaking, you know, to, to overcome behavioral issues, having a plan and having an advisor to oversee that plan is really what is needed. So it's the same if you're doing personal training or you're trying to go on a diet or whatever it is. Often we need help. We need, we need guidance. I remember when I was much younger, I was very self-motivated as it related to exercise. I would go for 10K runs and uh, everything like that. And then as I, as I got older, had kids, et cetera, it seemed to be more and more challenging to, to motivate myself to go out and, 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 and exercise. And so now I tend to go to classes, whereas earlier in my life, I never once went to a class, like a yoga class or a, any kind mm -hmm. of class, where you have that kind of oversight, somebody's, you know, encouraging you and telling you what to do. And it really helps. And that's the same concept in the financial world as well. So I totally agree that that kind of oversight is needed. And as an advisor, providing that, that kind of advice, it's really, as you say, to be there. And what, and what is really there is the plan and you reinforcing the plan as the advisor during moments of stress, like right now. You know, it's very difficult in certain cases for clients to or prospects to believe that 
sticking to the plan is the right thing to do, especially now, you know, markets are down, you know, 20% for the year, stock markets down 20, bonds are down significant amounts and so forth. And there is some change going on. And so good advisors do need to adapt to the, you know, the market environment, look for what values exist and how to reallocate portfolios. So that's kind of a different, but, but essential skill to have. We are in many ways, financial counselors, and psychology counselors, but at the same time, we have to be competent in our the actual financial advice that we're giving. So I would say that when it comes to prospects, when I'm talking to prospects today, I really need to try to understand what their experience has been, you know, what their current situation is, what does their portfolio look like? What and then, you know, to your point earlier, Laura, you know, what biases do you have? And we can, you know, kind of what, what investor type are you? So, you know, that's crucial, I think, for, for financial advisors to really understand, you know, the behavioral profile, create that plan that a client's going to stick to, and then be there over time, and you should retain your clients. Michael, Laura, and I could talk about this for, for a very long time. Unfortunately, we're getting to the end of our podcast. And I know for some advisors, it can be overwhelming when they are told that they are not only have to be the expert in money management now, but they also need to understand the emotions of their clients. So as we close out our podcast today, what are some of the best first steps that an advisor can take to help them embrace the idea of better understanding the emotions of their clients? And why do you think that is important in a wealth management business? Well, I mean, this may sound self-serving, but I would say, go take a look at my books. And (laughs) (laughs) you can really, I mean, my first book was the best-selling book of all of the ones that that I've done. I did a second edition of that book, but even so, it was a, 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 a solid piece of work and I would encourage people to, you know, you can get the most recent book, by the way, is actually the lowest price one for whatever reason. It's, it's uh, you know, it's it, the prices are, are, are quite good. So I would say probably get that book. It has much of what was in the first book and, you know, you can learn about investor types and it's so important because if you can understand you're sitting down with a client or a prospect and just by having a conversation, understanding the, the behavioral framework, uh, it's, it makes a crucial difference. And I, I, I've just, for myself, I have gained so much uh, from it over, over my career. And so I, I would just encourage whether it's my books or, or there's, you know, there's a number of resources out there, including your own, Laura um, and David, that advisors can read to get more familiar with the behavioral side. And it doesn't take that much of investment or that much time during during the client engagement. What I would say is it's the the timing, you know, when when these behavioral episodes pop up, you're in a position to 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 advise them. And that's what's crucial. So just having that knowledge in your back pocket. So when these situations come up, sort of right now, you know, in this market environment, you're you're equipped to to be able to handle it. So and Michael, as I was looking before the the, the, record, the podcast, I noticed that I actually bought your book and read it 
years ago when on that first one. So I am one of those that bought Thank it. You. Thank you. You bet. Yeah. I like to say like you, you and my mother. You know? <laughs> well, I, uh, I'm definitely going to go and, and get this, this next one too, as I um, was looking, I happened to, happened to just glance at Amazon while uh, you were talking just to see what it was, but you know, you offered us such great information, and obviously, Laura and I could talk about this. Uh, it has been a real delight to have you on the podcast today. So, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime. If you're an advisor and like to know more about Michael Pompian, just visit michaelpompian.com. That's Michael P O M P I A N. Dot com. When you get there, you can take the investor quiz and also learn more about his latest book, Behavioral Finance in Your Portfolio, a navigation guide for building wealth. This information, of course, will also be available in the show notes. For myself and Laura Gregg, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us on today's episode of The Flexible Advisor. Thank you for listening to The Flexible Advisor podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds or Northern Trust. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, carefully consider the FlexShares investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus and a summary prospectus, copies of which may be obtained by visiting www.flexshares.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Foresight Fund Services, LLC Distributor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Although we attempt to keep the information complete and current, we do not warrant that the content herein is accurate, complete, or current. We make no commitment to update the content herein. It is your responsibility to verify any information before relying on it. The content of this podcast may include technical inaccuracies. We may make changes in the products and or services described herein at any time. We provide you this information with the understanding that we are not rendering accounting, legal, or tax advice please consult your legal or tax advisor concerning such matters.